This is The Guardian. Just before we begin, this is a podcast series about stalking and some people might find parts of it difficult to listen to. Over the last two episodes, we've heard what happened to the women Matthew was targeting online. How he began close to home in a town called Northwich, but over the years started to stalk women all over the country. Until in February 2020, when Matthew was arrested by PC Kevin Anderson. I've spoken to so many of Matthew's victims for this story and... All along, I've been consumed by this question. Who is Matthew Hardy and why did he do this to them? For over a decade, Matthew has watched people online. So the obvious place to start finding out about him is through his social media. After all, isn't that what we all do these days? His Instagram's private, but... I find his Facebook. I click on his profile picture. Matthew's at a pool party in Ibiza. Everyone's splashing around in bikinis and swimming trunks, but Matthew's fully dressed. His hands are tucked into his long shorts and mirrored aviators hide his eyes. He's tall with short, light brown hair and he looks awkward. Like, he's not a part of the party, but just standing in front of it. I keep clicking. Matthew's standing in a bus shelter alongside four other lads. They're dressed in streetwear and holding cigarettes. They look about 16 or 17. Matthew's hunched over on the edge of the photo on the far right half his body's cropped out. Another picture. Matthew's standing outside Old Trafford. He's with a group of teenagers, all wearing the Man United strip and holding certificates. Everyone's looking at the camera apart from Matthew. He's looking down. photos are only snapshots in time and there aren't that many and there's only so much you can tell from them but I'm struck by how uncomfortable Matthew looks in his own skin and there's one photo that makes me pause a young boy maybe two or three years old is standing in front of a Christmas tree He's smiling at the camera while an older woman, maybe an aunt or grandmother, beams at him. It takes me a second to work out why this picture makes me pause. And then I realise it's the only photo where Matthew looks happy. From The Guardian, I'm Shirin Kale, and you're listening to Can I Tell You a Secret? Episode 3, The Man Upstairs. It's hard to get at Matthew. The people I speak to know of him, but nobody really knows him. 
He's always on the periphery of every snapshot, every frame. But the more I spend time in Northridge, the more I catch glimpses of who he might be. Let's go right back to the County High School Leftwich in the mid-2000s. Because before Matthew became a prolific cyberstalker, he was just a teenage boy. It was um, a council-looking building, big windows, metal. It was very grim-looking from the outside. Old wooden doors, lino flooring. This is Andrea Yule, who you heard from in our first episode. When Andrea's mum died, Matthew sent a devastating message. He claimed her mum had been having an affair. Andrea and Matthew were at school together. She remembers him. What would people say about Matthew around school? Did he have any nicknames? No, he didn't have any nicknames that I can remember. No. Just the weird one, I suppose. Well, stay away from him, he's weird, creepy. I see him in the corner, not looking at anyone, shriveled away. That's the only way to describe him, is being shriveled away from what's going on. Um, I think he had really long, baggy clothes. And just quiet. Very quiet. Andrea and Matthew were both in the bottom set for maths. It was a group of people like myself that struggled with maths, and people like Matthew that also struggled with maths and also had other learning disabilities. And the other people in the classroom were the disruptive children. The naughty kind of, kids. The naughty kids, yeah. Um, but Matthew would always be sat on his own because it was nobody in his class that he was friends with. Because he only had one friend that I can remember anyway. He'd sit in the corner, try and do his work quietly. He may laugh at the jokes, try and get involved, but then would be pretty much ignored. There's one memory in particular that stands out, even after all these years. Um, I think it was the first day of term. Mr Barry gave us new notebooks and he wrote on the whiteboard name, type of work we'd be working on in that book and date or whatnot. And Mr. Barry would write Joe blogs in the name bit and then shapes or whatever in the second bit. And then he said to the class, this is how I want you to write on the front of your book. Um, and everyone else wrote their own name on their books. Matthew wrote Joe blogs, And I remember the whole class laughing, finding it absolutely hilarious, but that really is a standout moment because he was, once everyone was laughing at him, he just shriveled up. That word, shriveled, I get what Andrea means. From the Facebook photos I've seen of Matthew, who's a tall, big guy, he always looks like he's trying to fold in on himself. That maths class was led by Mr Barry. Now, I find it interesting that teachers can remember past students at all, given that hundreds of them pass through their classes in a fog of impulse and links Africa. But Ben Barry does remember Matthew. My impression of Matthew was he was one of the quieter students in the class, certainly. 
Andrea liked Mr. Barry. He was one of the teachers who really seemed to care. He wasn't the brightest student, but he certainly wasn't, from my memory, a very difficult student. Uh, he, he just merged in. He was just a standard boy. He needed additional time um, to engage in certain concepts. But once open, he was friendly. Um, he would have conversations with you. He just needed that bit longer. OK, so Matthew wasn't one of the cool kids, not one of the troublemakers, and according to some, he wasn't one of the smart kids. Andrea also told me he didn't really talk to girls, let alone go on dates with them. But he's also not someone Ben worries about, and... Unlike the messages he would later send to his victims, Matthew didn't seem nasty. He didn't have any major behavioural problems, which were very vindictive, um, where other students can be quite aggressive. Kids can be really mean. Secondary schools are often difficult places and Leftwich High was no exception. They just allowed the popular kids just to run riot and allow them to be who they are, which is fair enough. But they, there was always this sense of they could get away with what they wanted to say and get away with it. You know, I'd be sitting in the classroom and someone would say something really cruel. The teacher would just bat an eye. It wouldn't be challenged. You'd get names called, punches, pushed over, all those horrible things. For Andrea, it felt like pure survival. It was just, I felt like I was always going into a battle every day with the girls, some of the boys. It was just a horrible environment in terms of the dynamics and the relationships that were going on there. I was terrified of being there. On one occasion, Andrea was attacked by a girl she had thought was her friend. Staff had to call the police. She grabbed me on the, and put me on the floor outside our form set and kicked me in the legs and the stomach and the back. In every school, there's a hierarchy. Always has been, always will be. Would you say Matthew was at the bottom of that hierarchy? Absolutely. The very bottom? Yeah. So everything you went through at Leftwich probably would have been nothing compared to what Matthew went through? No, I would hazard a guess, no. Um, what I went through, thinking about it now, whatever he went through would have been ten times worse. Do you ever think about what that must have been like for Matthew? I do, yeah. He probably felt a bit unpopular, not able to get to what he wants. So you went through this horrific experience of bullying and it sounds like truly an ordeal that no one should ever have to go through. And yet, you're saying Matthew definitely had it worse. Hmm. Knowing everything that's happened, do you feel sorry for him? No. No. He has. A, he had a choice to behave accordingly when he left school. Everyone has a choice. He decided to do the opposite. You know, I, I got bullied. I didn't then go and decide to cause those girls misery. Andrea's had a lot of time since school to think about why Matthew did what he did. I think he did it because he was left out of things at school and the girls ignored him. So his way of getting back some control when he left school was to harass us to the point where relationships broke down. 
he was targeting the popular girls, the girls that are really pretty, um, the the girls that maybe didn't give him any time of the day, maybe. It was like revenge, I guess. Yeah, I think it was revenge. I believe he chose this as his full-time job. I think he found a dopamine hit from every single message he ever messaged on anyone. I think he enjoyed it. And the math teacher, Ben Barry, has his own suspicions about why Matthew does this. How do I make sense? I make sense within everyone goes through different periods of their life, especially when you're within high school. It's more secure, it's more structured. As you go further and further on, as you get older, the structure is limited. And if you're left and you're unemployed, etc., and you still have access to social media and you're watching everyone get on with their lives, I could understand that people could go on a different pathway. In high school, there was a focus for everybody at that age. They were all aiming for the same thing and they all had the same opportunity. When they left high school, there were many different pathways for people. For someone who knew so much about his victims' lives, there's still very little at this point that I can glean about Matthew. What I do have, his Facebook, the name of his school, the year he was born, 1991, the memories of his classmates, and I have his old address. And it is to this address that I go to in search of answers about what became of this lonely boy and what sort of man he is now. All, all of us together, which is going to be nice, won't it? Yeah. 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 A bit of a jubilee party. That'd be lovely. Let's go back to that block of flats on that quiet road in Northwich where Matthew recently lived. Which flat, which flat did Matthew live in? One there. Do you have a job? No, not to my knowledge. No. Matthew never got a job after leaving school. Instead, he spent his time at home, day and night, slipping in and out of people's digital lives like a burglar. But when he did emerge, the neighbours talked to him. Before they realised what Matthew was doing online, they had a good relationship with him. Uh, I mean, I got on with him very, very well. We just kind of just tried to keep giving him the benefit of the doubt. And he never parted, didn't, didn't, do, didn't drink, didn't do drugs. So I can't fault him in that, that way at all. He's from a good family. He was always polite. Uh, and the 12 months before my husband died, he used to have really good conversations because they're both into football. For all that Matthew was polite when chatting to his neighbours, he was also frustrating. He frequently kept them up all night, and, of course, there were the unwelcome visitors, people angry at Matthew's stalking and determined to get revenge. I learned that Matthew's mum was also a regular visitor to the flat. Did you chat to his mum or dad about the noise? Yeah, we... we, we, we well, mainly his mum. We mentioned it a few times. Saying that, he was a, he's a, he, he was a grown man, so it, his mum could only tell him. And apart from his mum, do you ever see anyone else visit him here? 
No. 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 I beg your pardon, he did have a girlfriend initially. Nice couple, quite good together. And then I think that just kind of fizzled out. As far, far as I know, he did have a friend that lives that way on somewhere. I d somebody that I think used to do the gaming on the computers through the night. And um, I think that's the only visitor he had for his parents. Did you ever report him to the police for the noise yourself? I didn't know. Um, <laughs> we round here tried to work with him, coax him, talk to him. Sometimes as bad as it got and, and, and as uh, fed up as we got with it, we, we just... I just don't think we're the type that we would, in theory, dob him, dob him into the police. Matthew clearly spends a lot of time alone and he doesn't seem to have many interests. But there's one thing he's passionate about. Football. And that's really clear from looking at his Twitter. He's prolific, posting dozens of times a day about his beloved local football team, 1874 Northwich. And Man United. When you follow the trail of these tweets, what you see is someone who's passionate, opinionated, knowledgeable, and sometimes hostile. He trolls people and is blocked by them. He swears a lot. And his bio on the site says he has too much time on his hands. In the 1874 forum, Matthew's a research hound. He digs through the club archives and shares his findings. People are impressed and they respond to him online, but in real life, not so much. None of the fans we contacted, and we contacted a lot, remembered him personally. One player said he saw Matthew in the crowd often, but they'd never spoken. Matthew's fingerprints are all over the internet and his victims' lives, even though in his own world, he doesn't seem to leave a mark. He's the best market guy in town. Best coffees, aren't you? But sometimes we meet people who do get us a little closer to him. What, was, was what are you selling here? Oh, baby clothes, um, children's wear, quite a lot of nice little things for your children. In a local market, we arranged to meet Sabrina Cowley, who runs a stall selling baby clothes. She's a blonde woman in her 40s, dressed casually in jeans and a T-shirt with an open, friendly air. Hi, Jet. I'm just doing something, Jess. Tell your mum to... She's constantly distracted by a stream of friends and clients coming up to greet her. Sabrina's clearly one of those people who knows everybody. Look, I can't afford your jeans. <laughs> no, I just find it hard to sit still. Oh, no, we're all right, yeah. Um, so, um, what was she saying? So, um... Sabrina's the closest we've managed to get so far to Matthew's family because Sabrina's a friend of Matthew's aunt. So um, I was going to my friend's. Um, I was just going there to drop something off. Um, Matthew's aunt introduced him to Sabrina, although they barely spoke. Oh, hi, you're right. And that was it. He, he was quite quiet, you know, he just said hi. Quite a big guy, uh, mousy blonde hair, um, but, very, but very quiet. And that's all, that's all I remember. That was in 2015, and... In a couple of months after meeting him, Sabrina became one of Matthew's victims. The first message from a fake profile came in when Matthew was on holiday with his uncle and aunt. 
the message suggested that Sabrina was involved, romantically involved, with Matthew's uncle. You know, when you got, like, really close, and I'm like, well, what do you mean, really close? Well, you know, you and him, I promise I won't say anything. I'm like, you know, what are you going on about, sort of thing? So he was trying to say that something had been going on between me and his uncle. Sabrina was horrified. She'd known Matthew's uncle since she was a baby, and, I mean, of course, this was only the beginning. You can guess what happened next. And I started getting like all these like weird messages because I've like I've had hundreds. Because Sabrina knew Matthew's family, she tried contacting Matthew's mum, Donna, on Facebook to see if she could help. At her stall, Sabrina tells us about a message she sent to Donna. I said, hi, um, I'm sorry to bother you. Your son is making up fake profiles again. I'm getting rather fed up with it now. I've spoken to other people about him and he's done it to them. I just thought I'd let you know before I call the police. That was the 11th of Jan- 10th of January, 2016. Sabrina says Donna replied and in that message she apologised and said she'd spoken to Matthew who denied doing anything wrong. Donna told Sabrina that it was a tricky situation because Matthew is autistic. Matthew being autistic, it feels like it might be important. And of course, the best person to talk to about this would be Matthew, but he didn't want to talk to us directly. Another name that keeps coming up is Donna, his mum. Every time I travel up to Northwich for my reporting, people mention her. It seems she might have answers. So I write to her and hope for a reply. We'll be back after this. In all my time in Northwich, I've been so confused about how it is that Matthew seems to continually get away with what he's doing. Something his neighbours said stuck with me, that they didn't want to dob him in. And they weren't the only ones that seemed reticent at times to act on what was happening. Did you know, did you know where he lived? Did you ever consider going round? Yeah, yeah, every time. <laughs> I was like, oh, this guy again. Simon Daniels is a personal trainer at the local gym. But yeah, and like I'm not a small guy either, so I was just like, every time I was like, right, I'm going around this guy's house, I'm just going to knock on him. I'll speak to his mum or something, just anything. Simon's tall and muscly and he looks like the after picture in a men's health cover transformation story. Simon's a victim of Matthew too. Matthew stole his identity and sent sexual messages to women, pretending to be him. Obviously I was like, right, I need to sort this out now. So I've messaged him a couple of times personally and then I had to delete them because uh, some of my friends have gone, mate, you cannot message this guy because he suffers with mental health and the, just, the police will just turn up on your door. I was like, that's not right though, because I was like, how far can he go without someone finally doing something about it? What Simon's referring to here is the fact that Matthew has complicated needs and that's something that people in Northwich seem to be aware of. Some talk about the fact that he's autistic, 
Others expressed concern about his mental health. It made some people reluctant to get the authorities involved. What do you think the response was from the people in Northridge that you lived with? I think, I don't know if they protected him, but there's obviously, with the big thing about mental health at the minute and everything, like, oh, you can't do that, it's just, he's a poorly young man and he needs, just, he needs to be looked after more than, like, arrested or put in jail or something, but that's, that's my point, like, where do you draw the line? Someone should surely just take social media off him or something, or not give him access to it, or take his phone off him or something, because the fact that he was making that many people's lives hell, it's like, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Meeting Simon reminds me of a pattern I've noticed with Matthew's other victims. They're close to their families, they're often good-looking. They have relationships, friends, careers, full lives. Why do you think he did this to you? I think he had a big thing for one of the girls that I was seeing at the time, and that's why it happened and why he like, sort of started to try and ruin my life, but it didn't really work. Something social media has always done is breed desire. We look at other people's lives online and we compare. I wonder whether Matthew felt this more acutely than other people. When I started reporting this story on Matthew, I imagined someone sitting at a desk in a dark room with password reminders everywhere, multiple tabs open, hundreds of fake accounts running. Like that cliche you see in films, maps on the wall, red thread connecting them, blown up images of people's faces. And Matthew in the midst of it all, spinning intricate webs, trying not to slip up, remembering all of the backstories and the lies. As soon as you hear a story like this, someone's looking at you, you're looking for the bogeyman. You're looking for this menacing figure that's going to, you know, cause you serious harm. Former PC Stuart Lamb is one of the only people to have seen the reality. I went to his flat, which, I mean, it's... He searched it in 2013 when he was investigating Amy Bailey's case, one of Matthew's early victims. But it was just a boy's room. It's sort of typical of any, any bachelor flat, really. Yeah, you wouldn't go picking anything up off the floor. There was nothing in there to say this person uh, has the potential to do anything bad or anything like that. There wasn't any pictures on the walls of girls or anything like that, or victims. There was nothing to suggest at all that he was anything other than an ordinary young lad who was in a flat on his own. Stuart got what many of Matthew's victims have dreamed of. Answers. What were the reasons he gave you for why he was doing it? I'm so fascinated to know what he said. He just... He liked her, and I think he wanted to be friends with her. But he used another name because he thought, if she knew it was him, this is very strange, but this is the way the mind went, if she knew it was him, she wouldn't want to be friends with him. So he tried to be anonymous, so she would be friends with this anonymous person, and then he would turn up in the flesh, and it would be, oh, my goodness, I didn't realise it was you. You're so wonderful. Let's be friends. 
The thing I would say is that a lot of his behaviour towards Amy wasn't the behaviour of someone who's trying to be someone's friend. Often it seemed that he was trying to make her scared or upset her. Did you buy that explanation, actually, when he reflected on it? You can't question it. You just go, well, that's strange. Or I wouldn't think, how could anybody think that way? Which I appreciate is that's what you're saying. And you're saying, how could you be so gullible is probably what you're thinking of me. And you've just got to accept it. I know it's hard, but that's part of being a police officer, isn't it? Stuart learned from Donna that Matthew was autistic and had a learning disability. So he, was, he came across to me because I've, I'd got uh, experience of the issues that he was dealing with. So I think there was that level of empathy towards him and what he was going through. But not to the degree where you would say, oh, it's fine. It was more like, listen, do you understand what you are doing? And he tried to get through to Matthew. And I thought at the time, I thought, right, we've, we've got a breakthrough here. Because he said, oh, well, I, I, di- I didn't realise. I, I thought, and then he would give his excuses. And then you were like, well, OK, then, well, let's, it's got to stop. And he would sit there and he would say, yes, it's stopping. He's got his mother there as well, and fair play to her. She's been supporting. She's saying, yes, yes, it is. And then you think, oh, great, we've solved this. We're sorted. In fact, it wasn't sorted. Stuart secured a restraining order against Matthew for his stalking of Amy Bailey in 2013. But, as we know, Matthew breached it within months and repeatedly in the years that followed. Despite that, Stuart doesn't see Matthew as some big, bad criminal. He, he's a victim of um, his, his health issues as well. But the, the fact is that, yeah, it, it is important because there's certain conditions that people have where there's, there's compulsions, um, there's certain behavioural patterns that they they do that they've got no control over it and he was one of these people he was a nice uh, well-spoken young man uh, very very supportive mother you've got to look at do you punish someone who's got a condition for you know acting out whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand or do you look at it in a compassionate way and say we've got two victims here but then Again, there's got to be a point where you've got to say, no, enough is enough. How did you feel to find out that this continued for such a long time after you first spoke with Matthew to many other women? I mean, I'm as horrified as you are that it could continue because what help was there? What help was there for him? It's obviously the systems failed him and certainly failed all these girls. Absolutely, yeah, horrified. Before I spoke to you, I... I felt a lot of anger, to be honest with you, towards Matthew because I've spoken so much to his victims and I've hurt their pain. And, you you know, when you you see someone look you in the eye and and cry and you see how much it's affected their lives, it's hard not to to feel a lot of anger at the person who's created that misery. But from talking with you, I wonder whether I should extend a bit more compassion towards Matthew. Yeah, well, I I hope you do. But, you know, you are right in what, you know, you, you're right, all those feelings you're saying are correct. That's what I felt. But, as you said, there is, there is two sides to it, but he still did horrendous things to those girls. So keep hold of that. 
Stuart left the police and didn't come across Matthew again. Over the next decades, Matthew is arrested multiple times and he always seems to escape meaningful punishment. But in February 2020, when PC Kevin Anderson arrests him, things are different. Because PC Kevin Anderson has spent months building a case against Matthew. And in January 2022, everyone converges in one place. Chester Crown Court, the victims, Matthew, his family, PC Kevin Anderson. There's an attempt at a reckoning. After so many years, the stakes are high. In the next episode, Matthew's victims get to face him. We reached out to the County High School Lethbridge about Andrea and Ben Barry's experience there in the late noughties. The school says it's now been judged outstanding by Ofsted for the second time and described by inspectors as friendly and welcoming. You've been listening to Can I Tell You a Secret? Episode four, is ready to listen to straight away. If you need any support around stalking and harassment, you can get in touch with the Susie Lamplew Trust or call the National Stalking Helpline on 0808 802 0300. Further information can be found on The Guardian's podcast page. We'd like to thank the National Autistic Society and Autism Rights Group Highland for all their help and advice on this series. Can I Tell You a Secret is a Guardian podcast and it was made by me, Shirin Kale. The producer is Lucy Hoff. Original music and sound design is by Axel Kukutier. The executive producers are Charlotte Pritchard and India Rackerson. The commissioning editor is Nicole Jackson. If you're following the series, do subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks. This is The Guardian.